Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. So today we are talking about items that belong to the Tudors. We actually have a lot of items still in museums that have come down through the ages that we can trace the provenance back to the Tudors. And we're going to look at a couple of them today. The first item we have is a lock of hair belonging to Catherine Parr. Supposedly, this lock of hair was taken the night she died on September 5th, 1548. It was sold by Bonhams London in January 2008 for 2,160 pounds to a Charles Hudson. The lock is mounted in an oval frame with an ink-inscribed paper that states, Hair of Queen Catherine Parr, last consort of Henry, the night she died, September 5th, 1548, was in the chapel of Sudley Castle. And the lock of hair is still preserved at Sudley. This is the Mary Tudor Pearl. There are actually three pearls that are very famous and look very similar, that are often confused. This is the Mary Tudor Pearl, not the Pellegrina or La Peregrina Pearl, two separate, one La Pellegrina and the other La Peregrina, and then the Mary Tudor Pearl. This one is featured in at least three portraits of Mary I. It's about 64 and a half carats. It's from 1526. The Tudor Pearl disappeared in the late 16th century, And then a similar pearl was sold at auction in 2004 by the London jewelers Symbolic and Chase and was called the Pearl of Kuwait. The owners have made claims that it's actually the Tudor Pearl because it's very similar in shape and size. And this pearl is currently on loan to the Smithsonian. The Tudor Pearl was found about 1526, like I said, was given to Isabella of Portugal. When Isabella died in 1539, she left it to her daughter, Juana of Austria. 
It was then sent to Mary as part of the negotiations for her marriage to Juana's brother, Philip of Spain, and is seen in contemporary portraits suspended from a circular golden brooch. Here's a funny little fun fact about this pearl and Mary and the other pearls that they're often confused with. So a portrait of Mary I from 1554 by Hans Ewerth shows the Tudor pearl, and that was actually owned by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Now, they mistakenly believed that it depicted La Peregrina pearl. Burton had recently given Elizabeth Taylor La Peregrina pearl for Valentine's Day, which is a really nice Valentine's Day gift. Then the Burtons discovered that the British National Portrait Gallery didn't actually have an original painting of Mary, so they donated their portrait of Mary with the Tudor Pearl to the National Portrait Gallery. So this is the Tudor Pearl, we think. Next up, the Boleyn Cup, a silver and gilt masterpiece from 1535. It shows Anne Boleyn's crest, a crowned falcon, atop of a tree stump with red and white flowers. It was once a possession of Anne, which then found its way to her daughter, Elizabeth. And then as a thank you gift, Elizabeth actually gave it to her physician, who then donated it to St. John the Baptist Parish Church in Sirencester, Gloucestershire, where it is still on display today. Next up, the very famous checkers ring, which was once worn by Elizabeth I, a rare artifact that survives from her actual inventory. Made of mother of pearl, set with gold and studded with rubies, the ring showcases an intricately designed locket with two portraits inside, Elizabeth and another woman, which is historically thought to be Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother. Supposedly, Robert Carey removed the ring from Elizabeth I's finger on her death and presented it to James I. Over time, it eventually reached Arthur Lee, who gifted it alongside his Checkers country house, to the nation, and now it's a treasured artifact at Checkers, publicly displayed for the first time in 2003 at the National Maritime Museum. Next up, this gilt bronze wall clock, adorned with the royal coat of arms and intricate engravings, features a unique birdcage-style lantern mechanism. Its historical authenticity is debated, with evidence suggesting that some of the parts were assembled over time, and allegedly, Henry VIII gave this clock to Anne Boleyn in 1532 on their wedding day. Later, it became part of Horace Walpole's collection at Strawberry Hill until 1842 when Queen Victoria bought it at an auction. Next, this enigmatic Coleridge collar made of gold has a provenance shrouded in controversy. It's believed to be a 16th century chain of office given by Henry VIII to Sir Edward Montague in 1546 when he became Lord Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. Then again, it could also be a 17th century replica. William Coleridge, a former owner, sold it in 2006 as a copy for £35,000 based on advice from Sotheby's. Yet in a twist, it was later auctioned by Christie's in 2008 as an original for over £300,000. A subsequent lawsuit by Lord Coleridge against Sotheby's in 2012 resulted in his loss and considerable legal expenses. Finally, this pistol-shaped whistle pendant, intricately engraved with foliage, also houses some cosmetic tools. That spoon is actually an earwax spoon. Kind of gross, but there you go. So Henry VIII used to have trinkets like this. Trinkets, I say, they're golden, right? 
but he would have them sewn into his costumes for masks. And many of these he would just kind of hand out as he was going around during the mask. He'd have them sewn in. And apparently in 1510, a goldsmith was paid 266 pounds to make new trinkets, including small hearts and roses in gold, because all the other charms that had been in his other costumes had been stolen or given away by Henry. And this particular one was apparently, legend says, Henry VIII's first gift to Anne Boleyn. History, history, history. So the 16th century saw a really big increase in people studying the past. And we get this term, antiquaries. That was what they were called, the antiquaries. And they, they got their interest. It stemmed from the Reformation. So the very most famous of these is John Leland, and he's known as the father of English local history. He was a poet, and he first served under Cardinal Woolsey, and Thomas Cromwell was a patron. He actually composed verses for pageants for the coronation of Anne Boleyn. But while he's very interesting for that, the reason I am interested in him is what happened to him starting around 1533 when his life took a different turn. So he was given a commission by Henry VIII to tour through the country, taking inventories of libraries and monasteries, well, the libraries in monasteries. So he was looking at the libraries through the lens of a reformer. He was looking for ancient justifications of the new break with Rome. So, of course, this is right when Henry's breaking up with Rome. The very early Anglican church is, is kind of being formed here. And we're trying to think about what do we believe and what, is, what does our faith actually believe and where does the monarch fall in relation to Rome and all of that kind of stuff, right? And so they go to these monasteries, to these libraries that have these very ancient manuscripts, and they want to see what did people before our modern period, what did the ancient Britons, for example, before the Norman Conquest, before the Fourth Lateran Council, what did these people think about Christianity? Because there is this belief that really what Henry was doing in getting rid of Rome was going back to the ancient rites that the British had before the Norman Conquest. Okay, so that's the, the setting the stage for why they were doing this. But this act itself led to the discovery of these ancient texts, as well as having to translate Old English. And it, it directly led to plays by Shakespeare later and the, the uncovering of these very ancient British stories and this kind of sense of British history for the first time. So the work of Leland and the group of reformers that he was working with pioneered, like I said, the study of Old English, and they became the first Anglo-Saxonists of the modern era. And the way they discussed and wrote Anglo-Saxon history became actually the framework for our understanding of it for centuries. And much of their beliefs are still what we, what we think of when we think of Anglo-Saxon history today. So the dissolution of the monasteries and the study of the libraries and books at the monasteries also coincided, like so much of this time period, coincided neatly with the printing press, allowing many of the books that were hundreds of years old to be printed and reproduced for people to translate into modern English and to read themselves. So we've got people like John Leland traveling around getting these ancient texts and then translating them into modern English. They had to first learn it themselves, and I'll talk about that in a minute. 
And then we've got the printing press being able to actually print this stuff out for wider dissemination. So more and more people were learning about history and history was becoming something that people were taking an interest in for the first time. During the reign of Henry VIII, about 250 medieval manuscripts were preserved from university and monastic libraries during his reign. So we often, when we think about the disillusion and then the Protestant Reformation and the period of the reign of Edward VI, we often, and I say we meaning me, <laughs> think about the destruction that was done during that time. The, as Eamon Duffy calls it, the stripping of the altars and the destruction of the choir books and you know all of the kind of graven images and things like that. But we do have to give some thanks where thanks are due for the preservation of these monastic texts that happened during the reign of Henry VIII. And then what becomes very interesting is when Leland is on his tour, he also notes monuments and castles. He wrote out all the different things that he found and discovered about local English history in his notebooks, which later became known as his itinerary. And then that became sources for later antiquaries from the next generation, like John Bale and William Camden. And there's actually still a um, a trail, the Leland Trail, which is 28 miles, where you can go through and follow the itinerary that he took during one of his itineraries, during one of his travels. But let's back up just a little bit and talk about the founding stories of England. So Leland was among the chroniclers who believed that England was founded by Brutus of Troy. Brutus of Troy was a legendary Trojan exile. And some medieval chroniclers thought that he was responsible for founding Britain. Brutus, Britain, kind of is the same. Leland recognized that there were some issues with the story, some problems, but he basically thought that the general gist of the story was true. Chroniclers maintained that Brutus was the first king of Britain. He named the island, its people, and language after himself. And he also built the city that would eventually become London. Now, Brutus was apparently the great-great-grandson of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. His great-grandfather was the Trojan hero Aeneas, who was the son of Aphrodite. We get back into Roman and Greek mythology here, but Aeneas supposedly escaped the destruction of Troy, carrying his father in his arms, and then he became the leader of a group of Trojan exiles who escaped to settle in Italy. And then from him comes the line of Romulus and Remus, and many of Rome's rulers later claimed a descent from him and the royal house of Troy. And then through that line, we get Brutus a couple generations later. The story of Brutus of Troy first appears in the work Historia Britonum, or the History of Britons, from around 829. This is often attributed to the medieval chronicler Nennius. It's also, Brutus of Troy is also mentioned later in more detail in Historia Regum Britannae, or History of the Kings of Britain. Now that was written by a much more famous chronicler, Geoffrey of Monmouth, around 1136. There's some big differences between the two stories, though, and Geoffrey's work actually provides a lot more information and detail. So Geoffrey dates the arrival of Brutus on the island, which was then called Albion, to around 1115 BC. And today, we really don't credit his work or this history as English history at all. But from its creation up until around the 17th century, this was the creation story of England. This is how English people, British people, learned the history of their island. It was common knowledge that they came from Brutus of Troy. 
And so for, you know, about 800 years in there, this was the story of the founding of the English. This is the story that Henry VIII would have told himself that he was living up to as a monarch. This, this great line of Roman Trojan leaders, right? One person who did challenge some of the myths of Britain, including the myth of King Arthur, which was sacrosanct, was Polydor Virgil. Now, Polydor Virgil was Italian, but he's remembered for being one of the earliest writers of English history. He came to England from Italy in 1502 and spent most of his life in England until he returned to Italy for the final time in 1553. So he spent over 50 years in England writing its history. And he is, of course, where we get a lot of the stories, the Wars of the Roses and the Princes in the Tower comes from Polydor Virgil. Around 1506, he began his famous work, Anglica Historia. And the earliest manuscript of the text is from around 1512 to 13. And the first printed version appeared around 1534. Now his research convinced him that Geoffrey of Monmouth was not an accurate historian and that Monmouth's work was actually a work of fiction. Now Virgil took aim at, like I said, two kind of very sacrosanct people um, or personalities in this story, which was Brutus and King Arthur. Now, Brutus, he just dismissed altogether. He said, no, that's not even true at all. And King Arthur, he thought might have existed, but it, it wasn't this great Arthurian legend. It was just a knight kind of thing. So the whole account of Arthur's reign took up only one very short paragraph in Virgil's massive book. He accepted that Arthur ruled after Uther, Uther Pendragon, I suppose, and maybe would have reunited Britain for a time if he would have lived longer. And he said, these are the established facts. Anything beyond that is speculation. And he also said, he also called out the idea that Arthur would have been buried at Glastonbury Abbey because the abbey itself, the monastery itself, was not actually even founded until after Arthur supposedly died. The whole story of how Arthur's remains, Arthur and Guinevere's remains, supposedly came to be at Glastonbury in the first place is a really interesting tale that deserves its own episode. However, it's medieval, um, so I won't go into it. The short story is that the monks of Glastonbury Abbey had some other relics that had attracted a lot of tourists. And, you know, there was a whole network of tourist destinations based on relics and shrines. And in 1184, a fire destroyed a lot of their buildings and a lot of their relics and things like that. And then magically, as if by nowhere, a miracle happened. A miracle, I say. And the body of King Arthur and his famous Queen Guinevere suddenly just appeared 16 feet deep in the ground. The timing was amazing. Anyway, that would have been about 500, 400 years before what we're talking about now. So I won't dwell on that, but it is an interesting story. Where were we? Virgil said that it was indefensible to state that Arthur was buried at Glastonbury Abbey because, again, Glastonbury Abbey was not even founded until after Arthur was dead. So John Leland responded right away to this with every kind of xenophobic insult he could come up with. He basically said Virgil's ignorant. Um, how could he know anything about English history because he's Italian? Blah, 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 blah. And of course, when Virgil points out that Glastonbury was founded after Arthur was buried there, Leland responds sarcastically, 
Polydor, according to his equity and judgment, and so far as his authority serves him, declares that there was no monastery in Glastonbury in Arthur's time, so exquisite a judge is he of antiquity, and especially concerning Britain. So he specifically says, you know, how can Polydor Virgil, an Italian, have any kind of any kind of authority when it comes to British places and British history. So another late antiquary who helped discover and preserve Anglo-Saxon Britain was Matthew Parker. Now we've heard Matthew Parker's name before a couple of times. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Elizabeth. We've talked about him a couple of times on the show. First, he had been Anne Boleyn's chaplain. And we also then talked about how he worked with Thomas Tallis to write the music for his Psalter, his English Psalter, setting the English Psalms to music for the masses to listen to and to understand. And that was the Talus tunes for the Parker Psalter. So we've talked about him a couple of times, but he was also an antiquary and he was a collector of early printed books. Beginning around the 1560s, he actually made a concerted effort. He wanted to find out what he could about the monastic manuscripts that were being kept in the cathedral libraries and in private collections. On the 7th of July in 1568, there's a Privy Council letter calling attention to the Queen's care and zeal for the conservation of such ancient records and monuments, which heretofore were preserved and recorded in diverse abbeys. So again, what kind of led him and the other members of the Queen's circle to take an interest in these manuscripts is that they wanted to document what was the early English church like? What was the early English church like before the Norman Conquest and the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215? That Fourth Lateran Council imposed a bunch of different reforms on churches all over Europe. And what they really were hoping for that was that as they discovered these, this writing and these church documents from before 1215, they would get a much clearer understanding of how the church worked. And they would see that what they were doing was actually just restoring England to its ancient heritage and its ancient rights, as opposed to actually reforming and doing something brand new. Tudor scholars found support from their, for their positions from these writings. Before the Fourth Lateran Council, priests had been allowed to marry. Before the Norman Conquest, services had been in English as well as Latin. And there was evidence that Anglo-Saxon scholars had tried to translate the scriptures into Old English. So something else about this is the thing that makes this all really interesting is that up until now, no one spoke Old English. So how could they translate the documents? Well, it wasn't that much different than, than breaking a cipher. And so the scholars could use the Latin that was in both places because they still knew Latin. And so they could use the medieval Latin to come up with the, the different root words and kind of build a key out of that. And then there were several scholars who worked solely on translating these early histories and documents from the Old English into Elizabethan English. And by doing this, they discovered entirely new ways to see their country and their history. Old English Anglo-Saxon laws were discovered, and for the first time also the Venerable Bede's histories. A scholar called Lawrence Noel translated Orosius's 5th century Historia that documents reports from a Norwegian sea captain about the geography of Scandinavia. And then that translation which was already over a thousand years old, would later be used in Richard Hakolite's early travel writings towards the end of the 16th century. So, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about the Renaissance, we think about the Italian Renaissance and the discovery of all this ancient Greek and, and the manuscripts, and particularly after the fall of Constantinople, all of the different documents that were coming out that were Greek and Roman. 
But England had its own sort of document renaissance going on during this period as well. And I think it's really interesting to think that for the first time during the 16th century, they got to see what did people a thousand years ago say about our history and what was our church like during that time and and to translate these documents and to give them this whole new scope of how to look at their country and look at their history. And that led, like I said, to a huge increase in interest in history. Noel, the guy who translated that Historia document, the 5th century one, he then produced a dictionary of Old English. And by the 1560s and 70s, printers were actually printing out copies of Old English books, like I said. Now, to show you just how popular history was as a subject, there was a paper on the London book trade circa 1600, and the author Mark Bland writes, Many of the largest books were works of history. The largest book published at 363 sheets was Philemon Holland's translation of Livy, but several other folios appeared, including translations of Constagio's A History of the Uniting of the Kingdom of Portugal to the Crown of Castile, for May's The History of the Troubles of Hungary, and the Geographical History of Africa by Leo Africanus. Three history books were also printed in Cordo. That was Thomas Dinette's A Continuation of the History of France, The Mahout Matani, or Turkish History, translated by Robert Carr, and John Stowe's Annals. As well as these, the third volume of Hakalite's Voyages appeared. I actually did do an episode on Richard Hakalite as well, so I'll link to that in the show notes too. I did, it was probably about three years ago I did that one. The extensiveness of this list emphasizes the diversity and wide range of contemporary history that was available. So we have now history becoming something that, oh, and again, I just want to credit, uh, that was Mark Bland from his paper, The London Book Trade, circa 1600. And so it's clear that the Tudor and Elizabethans became fascinated by history. And this popularity then comes to its peak with all of Shakespeare's history plays. Shakespeare said what is past is prologue. And it's clear that the Tudors and Elizabethans were most interested in finding out their past for several reasons. Most notably, because they actually wanted to find the evidence that their view of religion was the most pure one, the one that the British had before the Norman Conquest. Additionally, they kept their creation myths and shut down scholars that disagreed, taking great pride and patriotism in their history. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, a sandful baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.